<laughs> good morning, Storyline. It's so good to be together. I don't really watch that show very much, but I was Googling yesterday obvious questions and easy answers and hard answers, and I just got, you ever get sucked down one of these pits where you're like an hour later? You have to look up Family Feud and dumb answers. It's just hysterical. But Steve Harvey does such a great job with this, um, with this show, and you would not believe how many crazy questions they ask, kind of like this one, but how many obvious questions they ask and people just get lost. Like they just have no idea how to answer the question. Um, sometimes the reason is that it's not that they just don't know the answer. It's like they literally just don't know how to explain themselves. And I know what that feels like. When our daughter was, Jenna, was about three years old, she was riding her new little bike. She had just graduated from a tricycle to a bicycle with training wheels, and she was so excited about it. She was down in the driveway, and she was riding this bike in tight little circles. And um, she was super cute, really brilliant for a three-year-old, but the concept of centrifugal force had not fully kind of, she didn't like appreciate that. So as she's riding in this tight circle faster and faster, I see her leaning over like this and I see what's coming and sure enough, she crashes. And you know, like little kids do, just in a pile. And from the screaming, you would think someone got hit by a car. But by the time I got down there, I had calmed down. And <laughs> Jenna, Jenna was also crying. And, um, but like crying in such a way like little kids do where they, they lose their breath, like they, they just freeze for a second, you know, her face was scrunched up, and I picked her up, and she was trying to ask me a question, she's like, why, 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 daddy, why, why, like that, and finally she gets her question out, why, daddy, why did they make driveways so hard, <laughs> right, well, the answer's obvious, right, like to me, but I was at a loss for how to explain that to a three-year-old, and a similar thing happened to me just a couple weeks ago um, at a, during a Bible study that I'm in with some young men. Talked about it a little bit here on Sunday mornings. And we're reading through the book of Colossians together. And we came across this passage. It's so beautiful. And we got stuck on this for a couple weeks, actually. This is what um, one of Jesus' first followers says to some more first followers. Um, this is what he says. So spacious is Jesus. So expansive that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe. People and things, animals and atoms get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies. Now that sounds so cool, doesn't it? It sounds so great. And it sounds so much like the Jesus that we've been reading about in the book of John since going back through June. We've been reading through the book of John together. But then there's this line where Paul explains how all of this kind of comes together. This is what he says, the, the end of this passage says, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. And we kind of read that part of it, and everyone was just kind of silent for a little bit, and finally one of these young men spoke up, and he said, I don't get it. Like, what does Jesus' death have to, on the cross have to do with any of this other stuff that sounds so great. And it's a great question. It's a fair question. And I find myself here before you this morning as we come to chapter 19 in John, which recounts the story of Jesus' crucifixion, feeling a little bit like I did in that driveway with Jenna. 
holding Jenna and, and believing that there is a good reason they make driveways so hard. Believing that there is a good reason that Jesus had to die, but not knowing exactly how to explain it. Because in this case, <laughs> for sure, I don't even fully understand it myself. So the account of Jesus on the cross is the most famous story in the history of the world. And yet, if we're unwilling to settle for just the quick stock answer that Jesus died for our sins, or if we want to go deeper than that or ask more than that, which I believe, by the way, Jesus did die for our sins, that's 100% true, but if we ask the obvious question, like why, like why the cross, things do get tougher to sort through. So the temptation is to believe, and frankly, I think that we're often led to believe that Jesus dying on the cross for our sins only counts for us, like it only works for us, like when we understand it, like completely, start to finish, fully, like when we can explain it, like when we have this, when we just have our ducks in a row all about all the details of the cross and why the cross and how it works. Which is why I think John does a, such a great service and all the biographers of Jesus, they do a, such a great service right from the beginning. Because John and everyone else, all the other biographers of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us this very interesting detail about the crucifixion of Jesus. Almost as if to say, don't overthink this. Like, don't overcomplicate things. You see, Jesus was actually crucified between two other men. Other biographers tell us that they were actually thieves. They were caught in the act of stealing something. It was probably, it very well could have been something very petty, like stealing a loaf of bread. But in, for the Romans, that was a capital offense. So they were being put to death with Jesus. All three men were there, hanging on crosses, Jesus in the middle. Now both of these guys were mocking Jesus at first, but then one realizes that Jesus um, was innocent. Jesus didn't do anything, and so he turned to Jesus in trust. And in the book of Luke, Luke actually tells us what he said. We're, we're told that one of the thieves says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus said, don't worry, I will. Today you'll join me in paradise. So before we delve into our question this morning a little more deeply, why the cross? I think it's really important that we begin at the end. We begin with the bottom line. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old... Uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. 
And what an immense, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You, never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and, yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, we, uh, uh, did you, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor ranger. So we have just a few questions for you, first of all. Are you, are, you, are, you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And, and what about, uh, let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. <laughs> now, now, that's the... That is the only answer. Thanks for coming. Oh, please don't forget that, okay? Because everything I'm going to say, I hope, won't distract us from that. There's something about what Jesus did on that middle cross that unleashes the grace of God, the unconditional love, acceptance, forgiveness, and affection of God into the world. And that's what I want to explore a little bit this morning, not in a way that seeks to explain it, because that just diminishes it, I think. There is no obvious answer to this obvious question of why the cross. I'm not sure that we could fully understand the cross any more than my three-year-old daughter can understand why they make driveways so hard. But I'm hoping that this morning, something that we talk about might hopefully inspire us to lean forward and to placing our faith in the man on the middle cross. I think one of the reasons that this question is so confounding for us is just to be honest, and I hope this doesn't offend you, but as modern middle-class Americans, we are at the tippy-top of world history. I know that we can all point to people who have it better than we do, but when we look at the big picture of human history, the truth is Even if we look at the the full picture of current contemporary world history, we are all in this room in the top 1%. We are. By any way that you want to stack up how we measure it, we are all in the top 1%. Now, I want to be very careful here and say, I don't mean to discount the hardships that, that we've had or are going through or any injustices or tragedies that have befallen us because I know there are people in this room who have suffered mightily. I know that those stories are real and those stories matter. There are multiple storyliners right now who are facing real life and death situations. So I'm speaking in general that modern Americans are a people of enormous blessing. I think we know that. Enormous advantage and privilege compared to all of human history. Instability, war, hunger, oppression, injustice, they just are not a part of our real everyday lives. But that's not true for most of the people who've ever lived. 
I don't mean to imply that we haven't worked hard for what we have. I know that we have. I'm only saying we are not having the average experience of the average human being or anything even remotely close to it. And so as folks who are poised at the tippy top of history, God coming to us, God coming for us to rescue us, to set things right, and to die doing it, if we're honest, it can seem like a bit of overkill. I think that's what I saw in the, in the faces of these young men at their Bible study. Like, wow. Like, one theologian put it this way. On the cross, the wrath of God falls upon God himself by God's own choice out of God's own love. We read that and we think, eesh. Like, God, we're, we're glad that you love us so much, but what are you so upset about? And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that question or one very similar to it. And I get it. We are all the product of our time and place. And for most of us, most of the time, we've lived in a very stable and affluent and predictable place and system, a place full of options and a place full of hope. This writer continues, though. The justice connection may not be clear to those of us who are accustomed to privilege, but to oppressed and suffering people in the troubled places of earth, there is no need to spell it out. God, in Jesus on the cross, has become one with those who are despised and outcast in the world. For the most part, to us, our world appears to be a stable place of peace and justice, and we live in a system that works so the absolute necessity of someone, anyone, yes, God, coming to die to make things right, well, yeah, it does seem kind of unnecessary, confounding even, but not to most people, not to the vast majority of people who've ever lived. And I think we need to acknowledge that this need for rescue and restoration that the vast scope of humanity has experienced is rare and often a private affair in our lives. Like we often keep our suffering to ourselves. And sometimes I wonder, I know this is true for me, if in spite of our longevity and stability and the peace and the reason our society ranks, the, the reason our society ranks so far below much poorer and more violent and less stable societies in happiness, because that's the one score that we don't measure up on, it's because we don't acknowledge how all of the comforts and privilege and blessing that we have in life, they don't bring us the peace that they promise. The religions of the world were born out of a desperate need for God to intervene in our lives. That is where religions come from. Anthropologically, that's where they come from. In the past, we've described religion as what people believe they have to do in order to get God on their side. A classic example, and I could have picked many, but a classic example would be a rain dance. Almost all ancient cultures had some version of a rain dance. And religion basically says this. This is the music. These are the steps. This is the dance that you must do to please or appease God. And when you do, then God will give you what you really want. Rain. But the cross reverses the direction of religion entirely. It isn't about us going to God and, and, and what um, we can do to get God on our side. 
It's the story of God coming to us, demonstrating that he's already on our side, hoping we will freely choose to be on his. Jesus and his gospel of grace isn't just a new or better rain dance. It's the good news that the goodness of God is being showered. It is raining down on everyone, everywhere, every day. All we have to do is to walk out into the rain. So if God is Jesus, if, as, as John claims, if God is showing us what God is like, which is what Jesus claims in the book of John, and the cross is the ultimate demonstration of that, then in effect, it reduces religion to a rain dance under an umbrella in a rainstorm. Totally unnecessary, because the grace of God is already falling on all of us all the time. No. 
So it's the cross of Jesus that unleashes this rainstorm of grace on the world. Now we can, of course, take shelter from it. We can keep up our umbrellas and insist on doing our little dance and making it rain by ourselves, for ourselves. Um, But I would argue that much of the dysfunction and languishing of life, if not the injustice and oppression in life, comes from us trying to earn what God has already given us. The the theologians and biblical scholars and, and the Bible itself describe the cross with words like this. Redemption, restoration, ransom, deliverance, saving, substitution, and the list goes on. And it's a helpful list. And those are right and helpful words. We could and we have and we will talk about these concepts more. Um, that are connected to the cross. But what we're doing here this morning is not an attempt to like button up this subject, but to open it up. That's really what I'm hoping will happen. So in the time that we have left, I just want to throw out a few examples that speak to our obvious question, why the cross? Why the cross? These are not meant to be answers. They're not meant to be explanations. I am not a biblical scholar. I'm not a theologian. What I'm doing is I'm just hoping that something that we might talk about will resonate with us Something might stop us in our tracks for a minute and encourage us to put our umbrellas down, to stop with all the commotion, all the dancing, to try and earn and achieve the good life, and instead just walk out into the reign of God's grace by trusting in the man in the middle cross. Now, all the examples or analogies that I'm going to use um, have this same theme in common. Because for me, this is the bottom line. This is how I look at it, okay? This is what it comes down to. What more could God have done? What more could God have done to show us what he's like? To show us how much he loves us? 
What more could God have done to show us who we are, to show us how we are, to show us what we need and truth be told, to show us what we really want? So one way to see the cross is God showing the most abused, neglected, oppressed, and dispossessed of us, I see you. I see your suffering, I see that you're broken, and that you're brokenhearted, and I'm coming to you. I'm coming for you, and justice will be served. Looking at the cross where God pours out his wrath at the injustice in the world onto himself, no one can ever accuse God of not getting it of not understanding the pain, the anguish of being unjustly persecuted or suffering at the hands of another, the pain of losing a loved one or being ground to dust by some unjust system. On the cross, God is not just seeing the brokenhearted, he is being the brokenhearted of the world. And yet God has a problem, and it's not easy to see. We don't normally think about this, that how can God have any problems? But God actually does have problems. God does have a problem, and it's a big one. Because almost all of the brokenheartedness in history, in the world, even in your life and in mine, has been caused by a heartbreaker. Now, is that true for you? If I were to ask you, what's the source of your broken heart? Most of us, not all of us, not all of us, not all the time, but many of us, much of the time, would think of a person or a group of people that broke our heart, heartbreakers. And God's first problem is this. This is a hard one to get our our heads wrapped around. He loves heartbreakers as much as the heartbroken. So he has to find a way to acknowledge the tragedy and the injustice of what breaks our heart without breaking the heartbreakers. This is part of what's happening on the cross. To be just, to seek justice for the heartbroken, God would have to exact justice on the heartbreakers in a way that would destroy them. Yet, because of his great love and grace, he refuses to withhold justice for the heartbroken or refuse forgiveness for the heartbreakers. And that's what's happening on the cross, some way, somehow. Now, there have been thousands of books written that try to explain how the cross accomplishes those two things at the same time, but for me, it comes down to this. There's nothing more that God could have done. There's nothing more that God could have done to show us that he cares about our broken hearts, and he's incensed about our heartbreakers. There's nothing more he could have done than die himself on a cross. Now, when I was younger, I didn't get this part, but now I can admit this to myself. Not only do I have a broken heart, I have broken hearts. That's not fun to think about. It's not fun to realize. But not only am I a victim, I've also been a villain. And so to see Jesus volunteer, and that's clearly what he's doing. Jesus is not, obviously, a villain, but he's also not a victim. He volunteers to go onto the cross. To see him do that for me, this brokenhearted heartbreaker, 
For me, this victim villain, well, for me, it draws me toward a God who's like that. But there's another problem that God has, and we've talked about this in the past before, and we should talk about it more, but God did not create the world to get something from us. He created the world to give something to us. And what he's giving us is not just life, but a certain kind of life. The life not just of a creature, but of a co-creator. And that means a free agent. That means we are people, not pets. We are people, not prisoners. We are people, not pawns. And that means we have to have the real ability to make real choices, not fake ones. C.S. Lewis put it like this, a world of automata is not worth creating. In other words, if God created us in his image, that means we must be free, like actually really free, free to dance in the rain of grace, or to keep our umbrella up and do some rain dance. For God to create us in such a way that we either must or we can't choose to love his love means that we're no different, we're no better than pets or pawns or prisoners. But this creates a problem. How does God demonstrate how good his love is and how dangerous it is for us to live outside of it and still leave us free beings. About 15 years ago, our good friends John and Sonia started their family, and one day I was just watching the four of them. Um, They had two little kids, uh, adorable, who are now in high school. I see them walking in the halls. It blows me away. But Avery and Logan... um, when they were little, I just, you'd stare at them. They were so cute. And I came up with this analogy thinking about this problem that God has. How does he demonstrate this and let it allow us to be free? So imagine John and Sonia ask us to babysit their children, Logan and Avery. And so they drop them off. They go out to dinner. They go to a movie. And when they come back, they see Logan and Avery playing in the street, right in the middle of the road in front of our house. So they whip into the driveway, they run up to the house, and they go, Mike, Lisa, Logan and Avery are playing in the street. What the heck? Why didn't you stop them? Now, if I would have answered them like this, oh, well, you know, we're way up here in the house, and they're down there in the yard. We posted the rules on the, on the wall. We wrote them in stone right here on the wall. But they went out in the street anyway, and you know what? We just love them so much, we just forgave them. Now, John and Sonia would not be happy about that. They would almost certainly tell me something like, Mike, that's not love. Love protects, and they're right, it does. Yet, at the same time, in the long run, love doesn't just protect, it also sets free. So if Logan and Avery continue to play in the street, there's only so much I can do to keep them safe. I could fence in the yard. And now they're safe, but not free. I could chain them to a tree, but now they're prisoners. They're not people. I could um, brainwash them, right? But now they, they, and they would stay in the yard. I could brainwash them to want to stay in the yard, but now they're pawns. They're not people. 
You see, this is the problem that God has. Do you see it? He loves us. He wants to protect us. He's willing to forgive us. But if we freely want and desire, if what we freely want and desire doesn't change, we are doomed to be heartbroken heartbreakers, umbrellas up, going through life in a rainstorm, but trying to do this rain dance all in the middle of the street. That's me throwing all my metaphors together there, okay? <laughs> Hoping something sticks. And so on the cross, part of what is happening is God is saying, I love you. I see that you're heartbroken and I'm with you. I see that you are heartbreakers and I forgive you. Now please freely choose to come back into the yard because life in the middle of the street, it's no way to live. It's dangerous. In fact, it's deadly. And so to demonstrate all of this, God comes down, if you will, out of the house. He comes out from behind the rules he becomes a child and then does the unimaginable. He does the unthinkable. He runs out into the middle of the road and on purpose, in order to get hit by a car in front of us. That is the cross. That extraordinary act of love all at once says, this is how much I love you. I'm willing to give up my life to show you how dangerous it is to play in the street. I'm willing to give up my life to maintain your freedom. I'm willing to give up my life in the hope that you might believe me when I say I love you and that my way is the way to life. Please come back. The cross, according to the Bible, is a demonstration. It demonstrates something. It is demonstrating God's broken heart for our broken hearts, as well as his anger at our heart breaking. It is demonstrating God's love for us as free children. And the question I keep coming back to over and over again is, what more could God have done? What more could God have done? Now, I'm not pretending this morning to answer that obvious question of why the cross because the full answer is, is further beyond us than certainly anything a three-year-old could understand about a driveway being hard. But I do hope and pray that this amazing grace might just stop us in our tracks and encourage us to recognize that we don't need to understand everything or be able to explain it we just have to choose it. We have to want it. We have to place our faith on the man in the middle cross.
One more analogy I want to throw out there that the Bible uses for the cross. It says this, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I love that, emptied himself. Two days ago, our son Jimmy asked his girlfriend, Carly, to marry him. And she said yes, by the way. And we're thrilled. And there are really no words for a moment like that. Words and explanations fail. And it comes down to, and it came down to a gesture. It came down to a demonstration where a young man who literally saved money in a jar for over a year. He's broke, believe me, I know he's broke, okay? <laughs> to buy this ring 
And then what did he do? He emptied it all out. He gave everything that he had, got down, bought a ring, got down on one knee, and then offered her everything he has. What more could he have done? That, in essence, is what Jesus has done for each of us on the cross. How do you walk away from a love like that? I hope and pray none of us will. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time in this place. We thank you for this opportunity to be together. And we thank you more than ever for coming to us, for coming for us, for demonstrating how much you love us, how much danger we're in, how much you, your grace means for us. I pray that we would put down our umbrella and just soak in your grace. I pray that we would come out from the middle of the street and play in your yard. I pray that we would ask, that we would say yes to your proposal. However it is that we need to think about it, God, I pray that you would help us to see that there's nothing more you could have done than giving your life for us on the cross. Thank you so much. God, I pray that as we leave here this morning, you'd help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, folks. We'll see you next week.